This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Linda Sievertson, and I'm really happy to be back. I've missed you guys. I took a few months off to focus on several books that have been clamoring for my attention. Maybe you know the feeling. And I've also been shoveling mud over at the barn to keep our horses from sliding away as record drought has morphed into record rains here in Los Angeles, seemingly nonstop since December. But I am renewed and energized. The sun is out. Our anti-mud system is in. And two of my all-time favorite women in publishing are here to play with us. You know her from her appearance with us last August and a few other little things like, oh, Oprah's book club pick and a seat at number one atop the New York Times bestseller list for her memoir, Love Warrior. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Yes, Glennon Doyle Melton is back, this time in the co-host chair. How lucky are we? She's going to give us heart-centered updates on her dizzying career, her divorce, and her recent engagement to soccer legend Abby Wambach. Joining us is Anne Lamont, author of the New York Times bestsellers Help Thanks Wow, Small Victories, Stitches, Some Assembly Required, Grace Eventually, Plan B, Traveling Mercies, Bird by Bird, and Operating Instructions. Oh, and several novels like Imperfect Birds and Rosie. People Magazine describes this writer, speaker, teacher, and progressive political activist as beloved by legions for her smart, irreverent take on the human condition. Anne happens to be one of Glennon's biggest idols when it comes to writing and sobriety and faith and charity, and I thought the two would be a perfect pairing, which is sort of faded, really, if you think about it, because they're both currently beautifying the pages of Spirituality and Health magazine this month. We lucked out when Anne agreed to give us one of the first interviews for her new book, her 17th, Hallelujah Anyway, Rediscovering Mercy. It drops April 4th via Riverhead Books. Because mercy. Because that's a topic that seems like a really good idea right now. Because learning more about what it means to be merciful, where I can find it, and why makes me feel better already. So thank you everyone for tuning in. Get cozy as Glennon, Anne, and I prepare to dig deep and go for the light. Welcome. Gee, Mama, what is going on, sister? Hi, Linda. Here we are. We're doing it. I'm so glad. Before we bring on St. Anne, as your sister Amanda calls her, I just briefly want to say that since you and Martha Beck and I taped your episode seven months ago now, which, by the way, was our most downloaded show ever. It has made my heart so happy to see the massive acclaim that you and Love Warrior have received, girlfriend. Oh, thanks. That was the best interview ever, wasn't it? Just you and me and Martha chatting. Ugh, it was so amusing. That was my favorite, actually. Was it really? Yeah, it definitely was. Um, Yeah, the Love Warrior stuff has been great. Phenomenal. All the good stuff. There's been some bad stuff, but mostly good. And as usual, the best part of it is just having great conversations with awesome women, which is why I'm just so psyched about today. Mm, Thanks, hon. Well, watching you continue to shine that brutal light of yours renews my faith that very good things happen to very good people. And as you say, even when the going gets tough, we can do hard things, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you know, the amazing thing about Love Warrior is that it was this uh, supposedly this marriage redemption book. Um, And then I accidentally got divorced like a hot second before it came out, which made my publishing people so happy. Right. It's just like a perfect timing, like a perfect storm. But anyway, the thing is that books end and life goes on. And we just we never know what our happily ever after will be. Right. Right. And, you know, I think I would be remiss not to congratulate you on your engagement to Abby Wambach. You know, you two are totally captivating. And forgive me if this is obvious, but one of my favorite passages of Love Warrior was when you wrote that it's easy to let yourself fall in love with dogs and small children because they can't hurt you. But grownups are dangerous. And yet you said that you wanted grown-up love, risky, true, scary love, and an equal partner. And dang, it seems like falling in love with Abby had to be all of that, right? Risky and true. And I imagine a total relief and completely scary. (laughs) Yeah, all of those things. Yeah. I mean, Abby is my favorite person on earth. And um, she, I don't know, I feel like I've been just searching for something my whole life. And finally, 
have found it and can just breathe and stop searching, you know? And having said that, yeah, it's scary as hell. Like, I, I think I figured out through falling in love with Abby that I think that the reason why they call it falling is because it's this whole <laughs> scary surrender. Like, I've never been. I understand now that I've never, ever been surrendered to another human being before, ever. Oh, okay, Which that's beautiful. Safe was safe and probably why I've been trying to figure out love in my head my whole life, right? Yeah, Which is yeah. what it was. Come to find out that you can't figure out love in your head. It has to be experienced. This is what's happening to me now. And yeah, I think like just a complete and total meeting of mind, body, and spirit is what I've been missing and what I have now. Mm. And I think it's crazy, right? Like it's, it's exactly what you said. It is a relief. It's like being home. It's yeah, finding yeah. the thing you've been searching for forever. And then what you figure out when you find the thing you've been searching forever is that you're always a little bit terrified because if there's something that can make you finally feel home, there's always this undercurrent of like, what if it goes away? Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. So I guess what I would say is that love is a beautiful thing, but it certainly doesn't cure someone of her anxiety. And her- <laughs> oh, I bet Anne will have something good to say about that. And well, I'll just close on this little ditty by saying that I know I'm one of countless others who is really radically inspired by the way that you and your ex Craig and Abby are co-parenting and cheerleading and lifting each other up as one big, messy, beautiful family. It's really beautiful to watch. Thank you. It's the thing I'm most grateful for right now. I mean, Craig and I, God, I just have so much respect for him. I think because we went through all the hard work that is detailed in Love Warrior, we were able to kind of leave each other without any um, any anger yeah. or left your crap. So, yeah, I mean, I was on the phone with Craig yesterday planning the wedding, planning Abby and I's wedding. Ooh. And he was just saying that, like, he's just he wants to be there and he's just grateful that I'm happy and he's happy. He has a new woman who I just met and she's freaking adorable and smart and warm. And I just want her to be my friend. So I was a little over eager. I think at brunch, I'm going to have to have like a second tape to second take where I kind of try to sweat less and just come down a little bit. But yeah, I mean, Craig and Abby are co co coaching Tisha's soccer team this season. I know. Amazing. And, you know, I mean, I know people are like, it can't be done, but it can't. Like, it, it really can. It takes yeah. a whole lot of, like, ego crushing, and it's hard, but it's worth it. Oh, yeah. My ex-husband and I, the fact that we can laugh and have a great time together now is such a miracle. I'm a believer that anybody can heal. Okay, I want to get to our beautiful Anne. I can't. I can't. I, I can't, can't, right? Right? Like okay. most writers we know, gee, you and I are both long-standing Anne Lamont devotees. Although neither of us has met her. So this is a goosebumply moment for me. Yeah, I feel, I mean, and no one, no one has had more profound effect on my writing and my faith and my sobriety. All of those three things are the most important things to me than Anne. I actually, she had a book signing near my house once and I was too scared to go. So I sent my best friend for me and made her tell Anne about me. Bullshit. <laughs> I did. Her name was Joanna. She drew her picture and handed it to Anne. That's the closest I've come. Oh my God, Anne, are you there? Did you just hear that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Gwen, and I love you. Oh, I love you. Okay, calming down, being professional. That is so nuts that you didn't go and you drew a picture. <laughs> No, I'm telling anxiety is no joke. I did I'm my best. Sorry, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. That's very, I'm very sure, sweet. No, it is a joke. It's all I joke about. I'm so no. It's a joke. It's um. She just is incredibly, incredibly important to me and continues to be. Thank you. And I love how you agreed to chat with us before the release of Hallelujah Anyway, and before the media's asked you the same question so many times that your head could fall off. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm honored and I'm excited to meet Glennon and I'm semi-excited to meet you. (laughs) I'm glad that you got all this to happen and that you and Neil sort of didn't give up on it because it's like I have missing apps mentally and I'm unable to do anything more advanced than a toaster oven. So I couldn't get this happening. But then the publicist was sending very loving messages that Glennon and Linda are fine. No one's giving up. Well, Anne, 17 books. Holy cow. Yeah. Tell me what, um, I have this 
Holly, anyway, I read just I sat down and wouldn't let anyone near me until I was done. Utterly gorgeous as usual. You have sentences that you drop all the time in all of your books. And you just drop them like they're no big deal and carry on with your writing. And I'm telling you that if I wrote any of these sentences, I would have them tattooed on my body. I would be <laughs> tweeting them out every four minutes. And what is the one question that people ask you over and over again, that no matter what book you're promoting? Um, oh, usually they ask a question about whether um, fiction or nonfiction is hard. Fiction is infinitely harder. But, you know, Glenn, this thing is, and I know this is true for you and for every writer that we admire, if I make something seem like I just dropped it, it may have taken a day to get it that way. Yeah. You know, and uh, bird by bird, the writing book can both basically be reduced to two or three sentences. One is that everybody is writing incredibly bad first drafts, and me too. If you saw the work right now that I'm staring at, you would feel worried and you want to get Neil in here so you could have a private, confident conversation about if I'm okay. Because it's terrible. It's 12 pages when it's going to end up being three. It's overwritten. It's overwrought. It's, you know, basic attack on entire political wings of the... A million details that no one is interested, not even me. And so if I write a sentence that say, ends a, set, a passage or a chapter that seems like it just stops on a dime. It could have been two or three hours, and it started off really embarrassing. Yeah. Yes. That makes me really happy. Yeah, it's true. And then the other thing from Bird by Bird was a story from my childhood when my older brother, who was not a good student and didn't care, had this fourth grade report on birds do, and he'd had the whole semester to do it. That's what you used to do in the 50s and early 60s in California. You wrote your first term paper and it had to be on birds. And he hadn't started. He'd had the whole semester. It was due the next day. And we were at this tiny little cabin, and my brother, who was a tough guy, started crying. And my dad put his arm around his shoulders, and he said, just take it bird by bird, buddy. Yeah. You, know, you read a little bit about birds. You write in your own voice what you've just learned about birds, and then you either draw or cut out a picture. And then we, you know, we'll start with chickadees, and then we'll move on to pelicans. And little by little by little, bird by bird, something will kind of use you to get itself written. Mm. Yes. And I have to tell you that Bird by Bird is like the way I raise my family. So the other day, my littlest was in her room and I told her to go clean her room, which she can't do. I don't know why I keep telling her to do it or she refuses to. So she, I walked in and she was sitting on the floor crying and I opened the door and she goes, don't say it. I know. Bird by Bird. Oh. <laughs> and that's how I did my whole divorce and my whole new, it's just... Mm-hmm. Bird by bird, and eventually something uses you to get something beautiful made. Yeah. Or E.L. Doctorow put it so beautifully 15 years ago. He said, writing is like driving at night with the headlights on. You can only see a little ways in front of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. Mm-hmm. And I kind of don't believe that for a second because I have a raging anxiety disorder, and I pretty much like to know where I'm going to end up, what I'll see along the way, how I'll feel at each stage, <laughs> and when the hell I can get home, which is secretly the only place I ever really want to be. So to go a few feet at a time by a kind of a dim light is such a radical and such a wild concept because it's not the American way. The American way is you should know where you're going, what you're doing, and how it will advance your career. And instead to do this thing about, you know, relaxing your shoulders and putting your hands on the steering wheel and putting on the light and starting off is, you know, my parents forgot to mention that to me when I was little. Same. That's why we have you to remind us. Mm. And I mean, this topic of mercy that you're discussing so much in this new book, Kalali, anyway, was so amazing for me because, of course, Traveling Mercies, I know, is just is what saved me. And, And I actually think I read that when I was still drunk. And is one of the reasons I decided maybe I could be a sober person and maybe I could even be a Christian person and still be a thinking, complicated human being. And I just want to read this couple sentences you wrote about sobriety and ask you about it. It says, all I could do for a while was not drink, period. Wake up, not drink for a while, overeat, nap, not drink for a little longer. Then I began to unfold the best I could. 
so set in my neurotic ways, an origami pinwheel opening each of its flaps to become its original self. Mm. Holy mm. Jesus. I mean, no, no. This is the idea, right? That it's just an unfolding or an unbecoming or an unlearning that it's like a returning to something that you were in the beginning before the world, you know, forgot to teach you all the things that your parents forgot to teach you. Is that how you've always thought of it, of sobriety as an unfolding? Um, I think little by little. I got sober 30 plus years ago. And I think for about the first four or five years, I thought of it as practicing having feelings without thinking about killing myself or suppressing them or rewriting them so that people would think I was even more charming and wise than they already did. So it was all about this old pattern of getting the surface right, not drinking, but not quite wanting people to see how damaged my inside self was and how pretzelized I had become as a young child, both by parents and family and culture. And then boys and the extreme bullying that I was a victim of because of this crazy, frizzy hair. And, and I was way too smart and I was way too sensitive. And it was all about trying to cover that up or armor it or burnish the surface. And those were the only operating instructions I had. And little by little, I started to realize, first of all, what you know, Glennon, is that we're all in the same boat, you know, that... You hear when you first get sober, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. But that took me about five years to believe because I'd see people with silky, long, smooth hair or beautiful teeth, and I think they were fine. I think what kind of problems could you have if your hair looked like that or if whatever? And little by little, I realized that we had all become clenched in terror of falling and landing on our butts or having people see our deepest, truest inside self. So it was partly about unfolding, but it was kind of like unsquinching, you know, mm. and unclenching. And, mm. you know, when you're a little kid and you see the smartest kid and the other smartest kid in the room or uh, the other smart kids in the room, and some of them, when they are doing their homework, they squinch their face. Oh, up yeah. this, remember, with this really furrowed, studious, clenched face. And I always thought that was what it looked like if you were in very deep thought. And so sometimes I would always try to emulate other people that I thought had the secret launch codes. Like when I was first becoming a writer, I wanted to write like Isabel Allende or uh, Ann Beattie or John Updike because they had the codes. And it just took forever. My fourth book was All New People was my first sober book. And about that time, I realized I didn't have to squinch and clench and burnish the surface and pretend to be smarter and more evolved than I am, that I just needed to, you know, bird by bird, tell the truth in yeah. my own voice. I couldn't tell my truth in Isabel Allende's voice. We have different stories, but it's universal stuff. The, if the three of us, both Linda and Glennon and I, were just sitting here eating toast and we started talking about our days or what the weekend had been like, it would be the same stories of joy and exhaustion and bitterness. And, um, <laughs> I had a kind of bratty episode at Safeway, and I'm really not bratty. I'm almost always in a good mood, and I became a, I had an episode. And you guys wouldn't look at me and go, God, you're kidding. I would have never thought that. You would both nod and laugh and go, yeah, me too. And if you said the same thing, I wouldn't say, well, I think down the road, Linda, that you will be able to behave in a way that is more lovelier <laughs> say you know what me too do you have a minute and then we'd be just jamming because we all have the same stuff just different details listening to you is bringing such flashbacks to me because I like you was raised in the bay area and for people who don't know that part of the world it's incredibly foggy I was born with frizzy hair. Actually, it was curly. As a kid, it was kind of pretty wavy. And then around adolescence, it became frizzy. And I remember being in the quad at school and I was in my cheerleading outfit. I heard some snotty little girl behind me call me Brillo Pad Head. It was so traumatizing. It didn't lead me to drink, but it led me to massive amounts of fudge at my girlfriend's house. Just constant chocolate for a while. I think about this idea of mercy. You say that, I remember somewhere in the book, I think it was in the first chapter even, you're talking about extending mercy to a nasty relative. And you said, she doesn't even know she needs my mercy. She thinks she is fierce and superior. Well, I believe she secretly ate her first child. And I laughed at that so hard. And I thought, you know what? I'm almost jealous 
of you and Glennon have this kind of twisted way of looking at things. It's like a distinct talent for taking a universal feeling, say irritation at somebody and making it hilariously, darkly dramatic. Does that come from being an addict? Because I'm jealous. The chocolate addiction didn't give me that. Well, I think that Glennon and I make it really funny and dramatic later. (laughs) It's like my book, Grace, eventually, eventually in parentheses. It doesn't happen, you know, right after lunch today. It takes a while. It really takes telling the story for you to get how comical it is. But it also takes being able to tell the story in the pain and to say this was just so infuriating and God, and then little by little with a best friend, when you lay stuff out on the table, you both kind of poke at it. The friend remembers something similar, and you can laugh gently at her version of it. And then you just see the absolute absurdity of it. And then you get your sense of humor back. And when you get your sense of humor back, then you get your truest self back. And I've said this a million times, but laughter really is carbonated holiness. Mm -hmm. And when you get that laughter, especially with a best friend, you can breathe again. And then you can tell the story because you got to the very heart of it, which was outside of the, you know, its grip on you. Yeah. Yeah. And you can laugh at your, God, I mean, I don't know how people who aren't writers do. I guess I used to just do it in therapy. But I mean, looking at those situations from a distance to be able to look at yourself, you do realize how ridiculous you are after a while. Like mm-hmm. personalities are ridiculous. They're funny and when you can separate your personality from the truth of a situation, that's what you do so well. You do so many things so beautifully, but that's what I can see. I can see a situation and I can see, oh, that's the part of my personality I brought to it. And here's the truth of it. And you put uh-huh. both often in the same sentence, which allows us to let ourselves off the hook a little bit to offer ourselves mercy. It allows us to gently bust ourselves, I think, of our self-importance and our perfectionism which is really the voice of the oppressor and the enemy of the people, that survival tool became a way that I felt personally good about myself. And with a best friend and revealing the truth beneath the persona, you just see how kind of silly it is because our longing is union with what I would call God and union with our truest self, which are, you know, part and parcel And yet, with that being our deepest longing, and I think probably the reason that we were born, we try all these detours of cute new clothes, you know, or cute new lines that we know people will just love to pieces. So we get to gently laugh at that. And the Mercy book is so much about patting yourself on the shoulder and going, it's okay, honey. And then you start over, you get to start your new 24 hours over every time you remember that. I said many times in the Mercy book that it's one thing to forgive an annoying or toxic relative, but that's child's play compared to forgiving and accepting and extending mercy to your own self. Yes. And Anne, I need to talk to you about another way of extending mercy that I'm struggling with lately. Please. I know where you're going. Please. (laughs) Okay. Speaking of extending mercy to people who you might perceive as merciless. So I do a lot of activist work, right? And I'm having a bit of trouble surviving each day under our new administration without homicide or, I don't know, I'm just having a hard time staying in love um, and in peace in the face of people who seem to be removing those ideas completely from our country and world. So my question to you, Anne, is how do I do that? Could you just help a little bit? Like, how do we stay people of love and peace and still resist what we are looking at happening to our country right now? Well, you know, that's a all day conversation. We can have it someday. But I know some things are true. And I turn to them what I get freaked out by the things I don't know i.e., will there be nuclear war tomorrow right after dinner during Rachel Maddow? Or will the people that I worship with, who in many cases are very, very, very poor and old, will they be wiped out? What will ha- You know, I don't know that stuff, but the way my mind works, again, as a way of surviving a really unhappy marriage with a lot of addiction, I use this obsessive toxic thinking to mood alter, and it's home. 
And I need to gently bust myself and ask myself why I'm there. It's like a base camp I go to. That is another addiction. And because if I'm there, A, I get to feel victimized. I get to feel morally superior, which is just my favorite in my repertoire. I get to feel doomed, which was my childhood experience. I get to feel like maybe mom and dad will show up and save us, which they didn't. That is not going to have been what happened in my childhood was that the grownups are going to have a moment of awakening and realize how crazy and damaging their thinking and action has been. And they're going to start over. They're going to come on TV and smite their foreheads and say, (laughs) oh, my darling, I just got it. It's not going to happen. And so I don't know all these things. And left to my own devices, I go there and I spin out. And But I'm not left to my own devices because I'm in recovery, I'm in love, I have a church, I'm a Sunday school teacher. My kids want to know the same question, Glennon. And I say, well, let's focus for a minute on what we do know. And one thing I love is what Mr. Rogers' mother always said to him after a tragedy when he would ask where God was in the catastrophe. And she would say, look to the helpers. And if you would look to the helpers, the people pouring in after the tsunami or the school shooting or the violent attack on the protesters, you would see such courage and sacrifice. I'm older than both of you, but in the 50s, people used the word sacrifice without shame. You know, (laughs) that you sacrifice your own sense of comfort and safety and whatnot for the greater good. You also in the 50s could use the phrase the greater good without Mm -hmm. um, shame. And so you look to the helpers, you look to what you know is true, that there is one who has all power, And it doesn't get voted into office or removed, fingers crossed. And that we're made of God. We're made of the same stuff of God. We're made of Holy Spirit energy where Einstein is right. There's only this one thing that it can't be destroyed. I think of it as this kind of love energy or this divine intelligence. And I see it all over. I see it in the face of every sober person I come upon because they're amazed that they got out of that swamp of mental illness, you know, of of self-loathing and grandiosity and physical illness and destruction. So other things I know are true is that if I go outside and look up, I'm going to break the trance that I'm in. My pastor, Veronica Goins, always talks about how you can trap bees on the bottom of mason jars without honey or lids because the bees don't look up. They just kind of walk around muttering and bumping into the glass walls. Whereas if they looked up, they could be free. And that's so me. I mean, with my arms crossed, completely bitter, walking around, bumping into glass walls. And so I know that if someone says, do you want to go for a walk or go outside, look up for three minutes and call me back. And I go, no, I don't want to. I da 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 And they (laughs) say, just do it. Again and again, I remind myself of the truth that we're not going to break some sort of mental or intellectual code. There's no launch codes to discover. You know, in one of my recovery paths, we always say figure it out is not a good slogan, but we take the action and then the insight follows. So what's the action that you can do today to give you hope and connection to something greater than your own troubled, fearful mind? And so maybe like I send off a lot of money to Planned Parenthood. I send a lot of money off to the ACLU. I will get one of my kids, my son or my grandkid and his friends, and we'll get a bunch of $5 bills and we'll go give them away to people at the um, intersections with kids, even though this part of me feels annoyed that they're there and I might miss the light because I'm giving them some money. You know, I do it. I take the action and that breaks the trance because the terror and the refusal to find hope and wonder in all of this is addictive to me because it's so new, you know, it's like we were talking about when we were first talking that my parents forgot to mention it to me. So you take the action and you, and the God, what's saving me, I'll tell you, is this, the humor on Twitter. Yes, <laughs> I know. Oh my God. I read it and I get my sense of humor back and then watch out world. Because oh yeah. If I got my sense of humor. Nothing's going to stop me. You know, we put our feet to our prayers We march, we show up. When we can't, we donate money to the marchers and to the organizations that are hosting free speech marches and whatnot. So I feel like, as I said, left to my own devices, I I, I thought of a great title for a book, Lennon. You can have it if you want, but it would be called Doomed. 
Because <laughs> that's my own devices. I basically think we're all completely doomed. And no matter what comes up, whether it's my son has a headache, I think this all ends in death. Totally. If I'm in love, the guy is on borrowed time. You know, whatever. But so that's left to my own devices. But thank you, Jesus, I'm not, not by a long shot. Okay, I'm writing that down. Thank God we're not left to our own devices. Right. If we were left to our own devices, it would be like being Steve Bannon. I certainly mean no offense to our many Tea Party friends. But if I was left to my own devices, it would be this bizarre, paranoid conspiracy theory based on hate of almost everybody else except for people very, very, very similar to me. But I'm not left to my own devices. It's like, you know, you see, you look for God in the world. I do one thing a lot. I recommend you start doing this too. I'm not trying to give you advice, but I go to our health food store a lot and I flirt with all the old people because (laughs) they're invisible. You know, I'm older. I'll be 63 in a month, but I'll go and all the older people are not used to people caring what they think, how they're doing, if they love those pink lady apples. And I flirt with them and I say, I love that hat, even if I don't. And it makes me so happy. So one thing, one action step is that if you want to have loving feelings instead of terrorized feelings, do really loving things. You know, flirt with little kids, too. I'm a Sunday school teacher, so I always have crayons with me. If someone little kid is freaking out, I give them my crayons, you know, and It's that simple. If I want to have those feelings of expansion and love, I do expansive, loving things. Everybody's hungry and scared right now. So our work's cut out for us. I want to talk briefly about this idea of service. You know, I'm a greenie. I'm a tree hugger. So when I see the environmental safeguards getting dismantled and climate science being denied, my blood goes cold. So what I do is I physically help trees. I take care of trees in my neighborhood and even just one tree at a time makes me feel so good. I took my son out to do it one day with me. It was when we hadn't had water in a year and we had water at the house and I took it to this tree that was dying and it was going to fall on a barn and I knew it could hurt the horses and I just started watering them one at a time and my son was kind of going through some depression at the time and he said, mom, oh my God, I've always wanted to do what you want to do. I want to help forests of trees, but I never knew I could feel this good, just helping one. You know, the two of you, the service that the two of you do both in your communities and in the global community is staggering. It goes against what some people say about writers, particularly that memoirists can be fragile navel gazers. And I'd love to know from Glennon, how do you think some of the tough times in your past has made you comfortable ministering to people who are on the brink, homeless people or addicts or refugees, When was it that you were able to be excited about going into those communities as opposed to afraid? Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm definitely a fragile navel gazer. I just think that fragile navel gazers can do good things too, right? Can be badass too. (laughs) And I don't know. I mean, I don't know why people would think that about writers. I think as an artist, really our only job is to pay close attention, right? To notice people and the world and things. And when you really start looking at people, in our world, you fall in love, yeah. right? That's If you're looking closely, you will fall in love. And when you fall in love with people, you want to start serving. So I don't know how you don't, art, I think that's why most artists turn to activism in some way or another, just because they're in love. And you've been ministering to people, homeless people and addicts and refugees forever. I was raised this way. <laughs> I come by this honestly. I was raised by very liberal parents to, you know, one of the first activist things I remember is my parents registering people to vote when Kennedy and Nixon were running in 1960. And, you know, people feel so overwhelmed by the hugeness of it all. But, you know, Glennon, that you feel that way when you start a book. It's like a unassaulted ice flow. And where can you even get uh, your foot? Where can you even take one step on that? But so what you do is you take one tiny crack in the ice that actually will hold the toe of your boot. And with this huge, huge tsunami of shock and awe and terror and astonishment, you start where you are. You you always share this in recovery. You start where your butt is. And that's sacred ground. And what can you do? You can register voters. 
And then the judge inside of you, the ego and the, all the internalized voices that basically think you're a loser will say, well, what's that going to get us in the face of the new immigration executive order that was announced right before we started talking? And you just say to it, thank you for sharing. Let me get back to you later. I'm in the middle of something. And then you go and you stand outside safe when you register voters. People want to register to vote. Or you send off 20 bucks to Oxfam and to Doctors Without Borders and to Planned Parenthood or to, you know, Emily's List or whatever. And you do your actions and then you go and you flirt with the people that are completely invisible or being marginalized. And you look at them. It's what Glenn said. You look at them. And I've taught my Sunday school kids, mostly my youth group that we have a ministry of granola bars and bottles of water. And we go and we stand and we give people, a, are you thirsty? And yeah, would you like a granola bar? Oh, no, thanks. And we say, you know what? I am so glad to see you today. And we say that at the convalescent home ministry. All we do is touch the back of their tissue paper hands and we say, I am so glad to see you. And then we get this kind of umbilical exchange of energy from the universe via a 90-year-old person whose family hasn't visited her in six or seven weeks. So, And then we also, another ministry that we do, and it's a tiny action in the face of all of this, in the face of the probable destruction of the earth, going back to my book, Doomed, Doomed, Doomed by Anne Lamott <laughs> and Glennon Melton. Going back to Doomed, we talk to the little ones, we talk to homeless kids, and we say to them, there are two favorite questions. What's your teacher's name? And we say, who's your best friend? And somebody is asking them something that there's not time for in trying to just survive impoverishment. And so, you know, the main thing for me over and over and over is to break the trance of the enormity of our place in history and to find one person whose hand I can touch, whose stuff I can bend down and help pick up for them, or whatever. One of my favorite lines about this is from the 60s when the war was, uh, Vietnam was raging, and Chu and Lai, who I guess was a premier of, of North Vietnam, who was always seen very languidly smoking his galois, was asked, um, what do you think of the French Revolution? And he said, after a long inhalation, too soon to tell. Oh, um, Lord. You know, this, our children grow up in about three weeks. I, my, I have a grandson who's seven and a half. He lives with me, and I said, oh, I thought you were like four, <laughs> you know, because I blinked, and he's in finishing up second grade. Mm-hmm. And it's the same way that time does speed by like crazy greyhounds who've just had an espresso, and at the same time, We have the tools that we're learning one day at a time in community and in solitude to stay grounded in the holy moment where our butt is, where our feet are, where we find one another. And in finding one another, we find ourselves. And once we find ourselves, then really with these guys in the White House, I feel like, you know what? Hit us with your best shot because grace bats last. I'm obsessed with you. That is the best line of all time. Grace bats last. One of my favorites of yours. Yeah. Mm. Grace bats last. We already know what's going to win, so just make sure you're on we the do. You know, there, when I was coming up, there was a French Jesuit named Terre de Chardin that you may have read about. He was just this beautiful kind of, he was a Jesuit, but he had a lot of sort of new thought. And he believed that we are in an evolutionary state, you know, that the Ancient rabbis would point out that we're on the sixth day of creation, as it says in Genesis, and that God is in the sixth day of creation with us. We're not done and on our own now. We're all in this together, and God rejoices with cures, and God rejoices with breakthroughs and civil rights or whatever. But Teilhard de Chardin said he believed we were evolving as a wave towards what I will call Christ consciousness, or you could call it God consciousness, or whatever Buddhists or Muslims would call it, but towards this very, very higher level of consciousness than our survival and fight or flight. 
and it's taking a tiny bit longer than <laughs> as is my own healing. Yes. And I always say that when I'm talking to sober people, I say, I thought I'd be all well by now. I've been clean and sober and working on all my stuff, my food, and every po- I have every possible disorder you can have except for gambling and a major anxiety disorder. And I thought by 30 years, I'd be all well. You know, I'd be Ramdas or uh, <laughs> Nanda Maima, and instead I'm... I get just as crazy as I ever did. The hope is, and the evolution is, I get very lost for shorter and shorter periods of time. So I might have three hours in the ping pong game of my mind working on Glennon and my new book, Doom. And then I all of a sudden, I read something, I see something, I look up, someone makes me laugh, I remember something, I smite my own forehead, and the trance breaks. And I go, oh, right, okay. And then I start my new 24 hours over. But, you know, I think so much of what we have to recover from and unlearn is the feeling that you arrive somewhere and that then that the grownups know what they're doing and the grownups are all feel really good about themselves. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's never an almost it's one in a thousand grownups who has lived and become the life and the being that they were born to be. It's very hard work and it's not convenient for the people in your family. Like if you tell people in your family you're working on a memoir, this will not be greeted with cheers. They will want to know how you're going to capture them, how you remembered what they were like when you were little. And I've always said if people wanted you to write better about them, more warmly about them, they should have behaved better, but they didn't. They behaved the way they behaved, and you have too, even as a parent, as a spouse, as a partner, as a friend, and as a citizen. But we slowly, evolutionarily are becoming new beings. I mean, that's what Lent's about. It's about the willingness to not know and to start over and to rent the cloth of how you've always been before and how you long to be now in presence and immediacy and in a higher consciousness and a higher view of compassionate watching people and, and seeing how hard they struggle just to even be here instead of you finding how hilariously annoying and ridiculous <laughs> they are. So, And that's what evolution looks like and that's what he, spiritual healing looks like. I haven't heard claps of thunder and bright lights and God speaking through a megaphone, but I have noticed that somebody that I had contempt for is someone that I now feel some tenderness for. Yeah. I had a friend who was a emergency room nurse, and she told me that most of the older people that she took care of, 70s, 80s, 90s, in her opinion, were quite immature, and that it was the rare elderly person who acted their age in a healthy way. And then I'm thinking of my friend Guru Singh, who I interviewed recently for this podcast. And he told me one time when I was lamenting the state of the government, he said, Linda, most of humanity is in the embryonic stage. And he said, 97% of people are embryonic and 3% of people are the leaders. They're the teachers. And it's up to that 3% to stay unjaded and keep doing the work. Yeah, I think that's about right. And everybody is really um, touching If when you turn off the bad voice of your own self-loathing, yeah. you know, and when you don't try to take off your backpack of separation from yourself and try to get somebody else to carry it for you, um, which is sort of what it seems the government is up to right now is taking the self-hatred and getting people to be sherpas for it. But once you stop trying to do that and you do the healing around your own self-doubt and your terror that you're a fraud or that you're as self-centered as, you know, that you're like I've always understood that if I were on the Titanic, I would be fighting for one of the seats in the um, <laughs> in the lifeboats. And that's why I'm so, so glad to have a God in my life and a Savior because you don't fix your rattled, you know, hyper-competitive, ambitious narcissistic mind with your hyper-competitive, narcissistic, terrified mind. I was just talking to my pastor who's doing something scary today, and I reminded her of about six years ago I got to go to India, and I was so, I'm basically a very afraid person with a huge amount of faith, so I'm not somebody who believes you can't have faith and fear at the same time, because I'm exhibit A. 
But anyway, I went up to the altar call. You know, there's about 30 people at my church. And I went up by myself, and I asked the church in Veronica for prayer so that I wouldn't be killed by snakes or terrorists. And she said, Annie, you know what? When you get on a plane, it's a little late for baggy prayers. It's time for trust and surrender. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never forgot that, and I reminded her of that today. And when you do trust and surrender with other people, this weird grace movement happens in your own clenched, squinchy being, which is it's like a meat tenderizer. It's grace as a meat tenderizer, and it softens your heart a little bit. And when your heart is a little softer, it's a little bigger. And I love that thing um, Carly Simon says, that there's more room in a broken heart, you know, and pain and grief and loss so often break our heart open and if we don't start trying to spackle and duct tape it back together then we stay open to the energy of the universe and to this meat tenderizer and so like there's if i had more time there's this guy in the neighborhood he's probably listening he's really scary mean man and he hates my dogs although my other dog just passed and he calls the Humane Society on me because oh. I have a tiny park 20 feet away and I'll take my good dog over for a run and he'll call and report me on a leash law violation. I mean, it's just, he's just crazier than you have to be. And so little by little, I decided, you know, if you've got a problem, go look in the mirror. He's not my problem. My problem is my reaction to him is that he makes me crazy. And so I set about with him as my designated person like a foster child and I first of all would put my dog on a leash hello it's the law I put my dog on a leash and then I would smile and it wore him out at first my dog got off leash and ran over to his dog and he started snapping pictures of it to submit right <laughs> with the brief that he was gonna, and I said I hope you get pictures of our two dogs kissing because they were kissing and sniffing each other's noses and then I smiled at him and the next time I saw him I smiled at him without a position, and I have ground this poor man down. And we are not friends. I will not be having lunch with him later, but we see each other, and we have these shy, slightly embarrassed smiles now. And that, to me, is what the New Testament means by new life and the miracle of grace. And that's what being saved is, right? It's not something that happens one time, and then you get to be in a club for the rest of your life. It's like empty Tuesday mornings in someone's basement of the other eight good people. (laughs) Exactly. It's this constant just remembering of who we are and who everyone else is. And whose we are. And whose we are. Yeah. I mean, I still have written down something you said that helps me with the politics thing all the time that I say to my kids, which is that God loves Dick Cheney as much as he loves us, like, or she loves us. No, not just that. Dick Cheney, God loves Dick Cheney just as much as God loves my grandson. Oh, you know, or as much as God loves a baby who's not even going to be born for three more days. God looks at Dick Cheney and he thinks, You are my beloved son. Now, my theological understanding is that possibly Dick Cheney needs to clean things up ever so slightly before he gets into (laughs) heaven, but he's welcome there and he's loved and he's chosen. That's a lesson I teach my Sunday school kids. You are loved and you are chosen. This is a come-as-you-are party. But um, that's the miracle of grace. Like I will go to my grave not quite believing it. However, I do know it to be true. And I got to tell you one thing. So when all the stuff started happening with my career and the book and all that, I um, have looked to you for so many things. And one of the things I love so much about you is how you know what's real And so I actually signed up to be a Sunday school teacher at my school, at my church, as a way to do real work. And I don't think there's any place that I am where I feel more like it's the only place. Sunday mornings when I'm teaching Sunday school, it's the only place I am where I don't think that there could be any more important place for me to be. Mm, So whatever that is, if that's the opposite of anxiety. Yeah. um, and I know, tell me what you always tell the kids, you are chosen and you are loved. You are loved and chosen. Yeah. And I say, is anyone here wearing a Pokemon t-shirt? And you know how kids are, they're spaced out and they're kind of looking around the room and then they look down and they see that they are and they put their hand up and they wave it like they're trying to wave, you know, a lifeboat. And then <laughs> I say, you know what, Paul, you are loved and chosen. You come sit up with here with me for a minute. 
And I do that at talks now. To, I'll say, you know, I did a talk to 800 people Saturday, and I'll say, is anyone here wearing a fairly dark pink T-shirt with an even darker pink scarf? And they kind of will cover it. It's such a trip oh. to be told that you, with all of your gravest character defects and faults and self-obsession, are loved and chosen as is. As mm. is. Mm. Go figure. Yeah. Mm. I tell my kids, be brave because you're a child of God and be kind because everyone else is too. Yeah. I figured I couldn't steal another one of your lines from my Sunday school class, so I actually made up my own. <laughs> Plagiarizing <laughs> at the church, Glennon. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to totally turn this conversation on its ass. Not that I don't love prayer. I'm actually a minister and have married four couples, only two of Stop which it. only two of which have gotten divorced. But I want to talk about swear words for a second. So anybody listening, turn your speakers down if you've got kids within earshot or press pause. Because I'd really like to talk about fucks. So, Anne, Glennon and I were laughing the other day about how many fucks we put into our original manuscripts. Gee, how many did you send to your editor, the amazing Whitney Frick, in Love Warrior initially? Well, to be fair, I wrote this at a time when I was, as Anne would say, ever so slightly belligerent and angry. So (laughs) I hadn't really gotten to the peaceful wisdom part of the book. But I don't know. I sent it to her and I said, look, there's, I don't know, 100,000 words here or something. I don't know. I'm bad numbers. And she said, yeah, but Glennon, 75,000 of them are fuck. So <laughs> this is a very, very short book. So when I read my, I had my 200,000 words. So double your behemoth was my original behemoth of my memoir. My midlife mess is what it's called. So before I went into radical cuts, which I'm still finishing, I did a word search of the word fuck. It only showed up 220 times. No big deal. Curious, I did a search of some of my favorite authors, Liz Gilbert. And although she had other swear words, of course, in Eat, Pray, Love, but she only used the word fuck in EPL seven times. And they were super creative, which made me super jealous. Things like, you'll remember these, Operation Self-Esteem Day Fucking One, or She Thinks I Changed My Name to Motherfucker. She's fucking with you, groceries. So I wasn't sure that my fucks were so poetic, which was really discouraging. I looked up Cheryl Strayed's Wild. Thankfully, Cheryl has also been super creative with her swear words, but she had more F words. She had 45 of them, but they were so, so creative. She had this one where she was talking about this recurring prayer that she had, and it was fuck them, fuck them, fuck them. And those were to the doctors who were telling her mother that she had cancer. And then she had this obvious, wonderful choice, right, which was, I've got to get these fucking boots off my feet. And then, mm. Anne, you're so famous for your K-fucked, right? The KFKD, K-fucked negative radio station in the head. And then we've got Glennon has the brilliant F-word usage in Love Warrior, where you say, Glennon, any woman who doesn't give a fuck is simply abandoning her soul to adhere to the rules. No woman on earth doesn't give a fuck. No woman is that cool. So you've got that. So then, but Anne, I think... Out of all of my studies, I think you have the all-time winner of fuck. So I'm just going to read it. This is when your son, Sam, was three and had just intentionally locked himself out of the house with your keys. And he said, shit. And when he said, shit, you said, honey, what'd you just say? And he said, I said, shit. And you were like, but honey, that's a naughty word. Both of us have absolutely got to stop using it, okay? He hung his head for a moment, nodded and said, okay, mom. Then he leaned forward and said confidentially, but I'll tell you why I said shit. I said, okay. And he said, because of the fucking keys. (laughs) (laughs) You win. You win the all-time best fuck word. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, I think sometimes that writing is just about always using the right word, right? And sometimes it's just the right word. And you (laughs) try to change it. And it just sounds weak because whatever you change it to is not the right word. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell my writing students to write what they love to come upon. And I happen to love confessional writing. And I love when people, when women are just outrageously honest and bold. And if they swear, I probably love it even more because my friends and I do. And it just makes us laugh. So... I don't swear nearly as much as I used to on paper. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 
but I certainly don't object to it. And it often is just the funniest, funniest, funniest way to say something. And then you really have to go with it. Yeah. And I think there's something, I mean, I think I've, I don't know who I was talking to about this recently. Maybe it was Liz. I don't know. But there's something about reading a woman who is speaking honestly, who Mm -hmm. throws those words in when they're right. that makes me like her more because I feel like she's free. Like she didn't try to follow the rules and be a lady. Like she just, there's something that feels like resistance to, to the whole being a lady idea. Yeah. Resonate right away when somebody, when a woman especially just uses the right damn word. Yeah. And also it's so wonderful when the very, very last person you would expect to swear, like an elderly Christian science woman or something, <laughs> uses it casually in conversation. It just is, it's like getting spritzed with a plant mister. You know, you just laugh out loud and with kind of delight and surprise. Oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, the other day, you guys, I was in the car. Oh, we were actually driving to the Women's March in D.C. Mm. And my mom, who, and I just, my got a divorce from my husband and fell in love with a woman that's been a little bit dramatic and beautiful. But my parents, who have been through a lot with me, <laughs> now had this new lovely opportunity to embrace change. And was not super, super easy for them. But, you know, two months later, after getting that news, my mom is marching with me with her like nasty AF hat and her support LGBTQ right sign. I mean, she's seven years old and she's marching with her LGBT. I can't. So we're driving to the march. And I said, and she's this very, very kind, gentle, beautiful person. And I said something about something Trump had just signed. And she goes, he is such a son of a bitch. <laughs> and Anne, it was the most, I, it did, it feel like being spritzed with something that was so, it was a gift she gave me, that son of a bitch. It was a gift. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, before we go, before we go, I have to ask you guys, I want to talk briefly about the Oprah effect. Most of our interviewees have been on Oprah's talk show or on Super Soul Sunday. And our writers listening may not ever meet Oprah, much less be interviewed by her. But hearing about the before and after when this book angel, like none other, discovers your work gives people belief and something to touch when it comes to thinking about their book hitting an audience through the media in general, any media. So I'd love it if you guys could share just a minute of what it was like being on Oprah for the first time, how it came about, or how sitting with her blessed your life or your career. And do you have any thoughts on that? Well, Glennon had the full enchilada. She had just the, you know, the book and the Oprah book and the interview. And and it was just astonishing. And it just made me so incredibly happy. You know, just that we're two women who, for whatever reason, are getting to disseminate this information about spirituality and emotional healing and sobriety and, and just what it means to be a real person here on this earth. But I came along pretty late in my career, and I'm older too. So it was a little bit different, I think. But the way that it's set up and the way the producers talk with your publicist and the publisher, it's all sort of like, don't think this is going to happen because it's a million steps between here and it really happening. So I never really quite thought it would happen. And then um, when it did, she was just so warm and loving to me. It was like not Hollywood, you know, it was not glitzy. And I felt shy because I'm odd and I'm shy and I mostly spend time with myself. But, you know, the, the first of all, I know Glennon will agree. The minister, the pastors on all of these big talk shows are the makeup people. They're the yes. people that just calm you down, yes. love you up. They do the laying on of hands by um, touching and smoothing it into and concealing and drawing it forth. And so by the time you've gone through makeup with, I mean, every show I've ever been on, I just am at my fullest self-esteem and lovedness. And so then when I met Oprah, when we walked out together on the set, it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, I felt sort of shy, but she just, we just hugged and, held hands and walked up to the umbrella or to this table where we were going to be sitting. And I'm not sure what the impact was on my career because I really don't think in those terms. But it was kind of anticlimactic in that 
it just seemed very natural. You know, <laughs> yeah. at the point where you meet her, it just felt very natural. Yeah. And, and I mean, to me, when I think about it, it's funny, the Oprah effect, like I also don't exactly know what it does, you know, numbers wise, or I imagine it's helpful. But like when I think about the actual effect of Oprah, for me, it was everything that came afterwards, which is I got to actually meet the girls that she, um, uh, the school. She, yeah. So uh. I have become friends with many of them. And so I've been able to see firsthand what Oprah does yeah. with and for girls all over the world. And Sweet. that to me, it has been the Oprah effect. It's like, it's very, very similar to the Anne effect. It's like when you get close to these people who are, you know, fancy or whatever on the outside, the ones who are affecting people are the ones who are the servants, right? Uh, I mean, and your and your line. One of my favorite lines in um, Hallelujah, anyway, is you're talking about the woman who helped you in the beginning get sober. Yeah, uh, Loretta. Loretta, Loretta, and you say, "Okay, I'll try to do this without crying." You said, "I was a hot shot when we met when I first got sober, but she helped me work my way up to servant." Oh, I have goosebumps all over again. Mm-hmm. I mean. The Oprah effect and the Anne effect is that when you get close to these people who seem their success, their real success is based on the fact that their feet are firmly on the ground in their communities, serving the people that they can touch. And so the Oprah effect or the Anne effect for me is that I want to be better in my real life than people would even know. Yeah. Yeah. In my outer life. Yeah. The most starstruck and incapacitated I ever was was I got to meet Bill Clinton briefly, and yeah. I actually started <laughs> slavering, and I had to duck my head, my head down under onto my shoulder like a little bird, like an injured little bird, and I was trying to talk to him. This is eight years ago, uh, I mean 12 years ago when Kerry was running against Bush, and I was trying to sound hip, slick, and cool, and I sounded like someone had put Novocaine in my tongue, and I couldn't say simple sentences. And plus, I had this, I developed this tick between my eyeball and my forehead. And he was so sweet about it. And then the two most amazing celebrities where I, I felt like I would faint, one was Serena Williams. And she was the sweetest, kindest person. She could have been my neighbor down, four houses down. And then Betty White sort of took my family, who were all kind of socially inept and losers, and she took us under her wing for this social thing. And she was like our bodyguard, and it, it was like having a flight attendant. And it was <laughs> Betty White, you know, who's like God. So I don't know. But with Oprah, I just felt like I already knew her, and it was just very natural and kind of dorky and sweet. I had the opposite experience. I was teaching a writing retreat in Carmel, at my favorite place to be with the most beautiful women, and I was leaving on such a high And I was sitting at the table. It was our Friday afternoon brunch before I was going to get in the car and go to an Oprah event. It was when she was doing the big stadium tour and there was many thousands of people there, but I bought the best seat in the house. So I was going to be in the front row. I was sitting right next to Elizabeth Gilbert. I was so, so excited. I'm sitting with the ladies and they knew where I was going. And I had just come out with an app. I have an app called the Boyfriend Log and it's a color coded diary on your phone that helps you keep track of your love life so that if you're being abused in any way, it's a way of keeping track of your days on a calendar through color so that you don't go into denial. You don't whitewash your relationship. I had just come out with that. And so the ladies were all excited and they said, you know, Oprah's whole thing is about empowerment for women. And she's, she's such an advocate for being awake and staying awake and knowing what's really happening. You have to tell her because I had this lunch with Oprah and there were not going to be that many of us there. And we were going to take pictures with her and they're like, You have a couple minutes with her, Linda. You have to tell her. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to hit her up for a favor while I'm sitting at her event. There's no way. They were fighting me. And I was like, no, 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 I can't do it. So I got in the car totally flustered. I'm driving there going, God, what do I do? I mean, maybe I should say something. Two minutes later, my ex-husband calls. And at this point, we were in a horrible divorce. I was so afraid of him. And he calls because he's had this really bad, massive fight with the woman he left me for. And he's calling to say he's sorry. And we talk for an hour and a half, the entire way to the Oprah event, we're talking on the phone. But I am now a complete nervous wreck because I'm going through so many emotions of like the pain of our divorce and the loss and the grief. At any rate, I get to the Oprah event. I'm now sweating. 
I, my face is broken out in this weird kind of hive. My eyes look like you guys, it looked like I was having an allergic reaction to something and my eyes look like I had been beaten. And here's the worst part. I had the most insane gas. It was as if I had rotting eggs in my stomach. So I go to the lunch. I get my second with Oprah, right? Like the curtain parts and we come into a hug and we're going to take a picture together. And the only thing I can do at this point, I'm so messed up, is I fall into her bosom, treating her as if I had lost her for my entire life. I can't talk. And I basically just look like a complete idiot. And the photo of the two of us is the ugliest thing. I've never looked worse, but it was just hilarious. And the only thing I could say to her, my friend Paul Williams was on Super Soul Sunday that week, and she was talking about him on stage up at the event. And I just said, Paul is like my best friend. And she was like, oh, that's nice. (laughs) And that's my Oprah story. I've never been an idiot before like that with any famous person, but I couldn't get it together. Yeah, that sounds right. The good news is when you're socially awkward with everyone, which I feel like I get, get, famous people are no different, right? I'm just like permanently, it could be called social anxiety, or I just say, I'm just starstruck by everyone. Oh, that's beautiful. Awkward constantly, no matter if it's who it is. And anything that you would like to tell us before we close? Oh, my gosh. Do you still pray simply? Are your prayers still help things well? What does praying look like for you now? Well, I wake up every morning. And 30 years ago, I used to wake up and go, oh, God, it's so hopeless. I'm so sick. And now I wake up and I say to God, hi. Mm -hmm. And then I offer myself to God. To use with me and to do with me as he or she chooses. And I pray not to be such a big whiny baby. Mm -hmm. I have a few people who are in really dire uh, medical emergencies and I lift them up for perfect healing, whatever their destiny is going to turn out to be. I know they'll have perfect healing and peace. And then usually around that time, my grandson has crawled into bed with me and he starts shaking me because he doesn't know I'm praying. He thinks I'm sleeping and that I should get up and start discussing his plans for the day and what he would like for breakfast. So I have kind of life on life's terms prayers and I pray all day, every day. And I mostly pray help, thanks, wow, and that I pray to stop being such a whiny baby. Mm. I love it. I just wanted to say just thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both so much. I prayed for this interview to happen, and I'm just amazed by the goodness that transpired here. You two have been such a huge light in my life and continue to be, and I'm just so honored. Thank you. Love to your grandbaby. Yeah, he's a grandchild, which he's not a baby anymore, but he is really hilariously sweet and dear person. And my favorite thing he ever said was not that long ago, he said, Nana, can I take a shower with you if I promise not to laugh? (laughs) 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 Okay, you two, I'm getting hugs over this air or whatever it is that we're communicating by and I'll meet you somewhere on the road, okay? I can't wait. I cannot wait. Did a love, love, love you too. Love, love, love. Okay, bye. God, it's good to be back. I would do this for free if I had to. Wait, I do do it for free. (laughs) But your good vibes and five stars on iTunes fill me up. So keep them coming if you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't already, you can find and follow Glennon over at mamastery.com and Anne Lamont on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. By example... They'll help you fight for and advocate for your own creativity. Speaking of, I just wrote up a blog post on how to go dark and write about how to clear out time for yourself by yourself. Whether you can block out a month, a week, a weekend, or half a day, you'll find a ton of support and inspiration in the post over at bookmama.com. Lastly, if you'd rather I hold your feet to the fire in Carmel, not literally, of course, You can find info on my writing retreats over at bookmama.com as well. That's all for now. I'm excited to share next month's guest with you soon. Until then, write on.